Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. Chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel, beginning at verse 30. And they went forth from thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered up into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he shall rise again. But they understood not the same, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you reasoning on the way? But they held their peace, for they had disputed one with another on the way who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said unto them, If any man would be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such little children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever receiveth me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. John said unto him, Teacher, we saw one casting out demons in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man who shall do a mighty work in my name, and be able quickly to speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is for us. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink, because ye are Christ's, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And whosoever shall cause one of these little ones that believe on me to stumble, it were better for him if a great millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand cause thee to stumble, cut it off. It is good for thee to enter into life maimed rather than having thy two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if thy foot cause thee to stumble, cut it off. It is good for thee to enter into life halt rather than having thy two feet to be cast into hell. And if thine eye cause thee to stumble, cast it out. It's, it is good for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace one with another. Now, Lord, we do depend on thee entirely this evening, and we ask that by thy Spirit thou blow through our hearts and minds, blowing out all that's dull and heavy and somehow sticky, 
or anything, Lord, that would some from this day divorce us or alienate us from thee. We pray, Lord, through the blood of the Lamb and by the ministry of thy Spirit that thou wilt reach us this evening. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, now, this evening, we take the third of these subsections in this whole section entitled The Cross of Christ, the Principle of True Service. Last week, you remember, we spoke about the Transfiguration and we entitled that section The Principle of the Cross Illustrated. Well, now, you've got that in note form on your seat and uh, you will be able to uh, look that up yourself. Um, this evening I want to go on now with what I have entitled The Necessity of the Cross in Producing True Greatness Through Serving. Now we're only going to consider these verses that we have read together this evening from verse 30 of chapter 9 to verse 50. Just these 20 verses. Now, may I say straight away this evening that there, uh, you, you may wonder why we're going to, we spend a whole evening on these a uh, few verses, but in actual fact, these verses have um, caused many a uh, Bible student a headache. There are many different interpretations of this, and in fact many just cannot find their way through it at all. For one reason is that Mark doesn't in all the cases um, uh, give the, uh, he gives a kind of precy form of some of the words. He leaves things out that we have in Matthew or Luke. And uh, people have felt that the only way they can understand this is by turning back to Matthew or turning over to Luke. And uh, there are other things too. We'll look at that as we come to it. But the fact is that Mark knows exactly what he's doing in these few verses and he is in fact drawing our attention to something which is tremendously important the necessity of the cross in producing true greatness through serving now first if you will take this uh, part if you will look at verses um, 30 and uh, 31 and 32 Christ again plainly foretells his coming death and resurrection. This is the third time Mark records such a prediction. You remember the other two uh, predictions in this whole section. Mark 8 verse 31 was the first and Mark chapter 9 verse 9 and 12 was the second. This is the third prediction which Mark records. Mark also clearly tells us that the Lord had a very deep burden at this time and this burden was to teach his disciples what his real work was and in order to do that he went through Galilee incognito he kept his movements secret in order not to draw these vast crowds to himself on the one hand and on the other hand to devote himself entirely to this special teaching. Now that straight away has a lesson for all of us 
because some seem to get the idea that you've got to sort of always be dealing with the crowds, but not so. There are times when even the law deliberately withdrew or deliberately, as it were, kept his movement secret in order to fulfill a special ministry. And this was one of those occasions. Um, we see that in verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man will be delivered up into the hands of men. For he was teaching his disciples. Uh, he, did, he was passing through Galilee, and he would not have anyone know it. For he was teaching his disciples. There was a burden on his heart. Now, obviously, he said much more than what we have recorded here or elsewhere in the Gospels. As they went through Galilee, therefore, they kept their movements secret. And the Lord spent all this time teaching them quite plainly about his coming work on the cross. It is noteworthy that the disciples still did not understand it says in verse 32, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. How like us that is. When we don't understand something, we're just too frightened to say anything. Isn't it strange? It's just like us. And um, I think it's noteworthy for this reason. Even plain, concentrated, and consecutive teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ himself cannot illuminate a person. Isn't that incredible? You would have thought that the Lord Jesus in taking them aside secretly and consistently, consecutively, continuously in a concentrated manner in plain, direct, simple words talking about what his real work was you would have thought somehow or other it would have got through their dense, thick heads and they would have finally understood or got some glimpse, but no. Now surely that shows us once again this principle we've seen all the way through Mark, that only the Holy Spirit can give divine illumination and spiritual understanding. You remember the Apostle Paul once said, even if we've known Christ after the flesh, henceforth know we him no more like that. We need to know the Lord spiritually. Now, you've got a number of scriptures you can think of straight away, which we all know well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man receiveth not the things of God, even if he's a Christian. The natural man receiveth not the things of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And they are spiritually discerned, or discerned in the spirit, or by the spirit. Or again, you think of um, the passage in John chapter 16 where the Lord Jesus said, And when he has come, the Spirit of truth, he himself will lead you into all truth. He will glorify me. He will take of the things of myself and he will declare them unto you. We see how much they needed it and how much we need it. 
For we cannot just say, ah, but we live after Pentecost. Because do you remember when the Apostle Paul wrote that letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1 and verse 17 and 18, and he gets on his knees, I pray the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he will grant to you a spirit of revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of Christ having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that ye might know. Well, we pass on from that. So they didn't understand. They had all this concentrated, continuous, plain, direct teaching about one specific matter, and they didn't understand. My, it shows that we could be under a, a, an anointed ministry, a divinely empowered ministry, and still be blind as bats when it comes to the real meaning of what it's all about. Well, well, we need to pray that the Lord will break through if there's a need of that in our lives. Now, it's a very human scene that we have presented to us uh, in these verses. It all arose, Mark tells us, out of a heated discussion which the disciples had had among themselves on their way home to Capernaum. They'd been going through Galilee, they'd kept their movement secret, and as is the custom in the East along these rather narrow bridle paths or footpaths, the master probably had gone on ahead. They certainly would never walk in front of the master. This is one of the things even today is you never walk in front of someone you respect. You always walk behind. So the Lord would have probably been ahead, and they were all strung out, and they'd had such a ding-dong battle on the way home. The word um, uh, uh, reasoning um, it, it has got the idea of not only reasoning but bickering in it. Uh, they'd had a real old battle on their way home and it was an argument as to who amongst them was the greatest. How human, especially like boys. On their way, and oh, I suppose these fellows, they were only in their 20s, you must remember that. They were on their way, and they were having a great ding-dong battle with each other. Who amongst the 12 of us is the greatest? Now, how had it started? I just wondered, did it start with a query over why the three were taken up the mountain? Well, now that's a sort of speculation on my part, but I have often wondered whether it all began with someone like Thomas saying, why did he take those three up? What's special about them? Favoritism, I mean, it, John and James, I don't see why you should take them up, and Peter? Anyway, Andrew senior to Peter, we should have taken up Andrew. Andrew's greater than Peter. It's wrong to take the youngest. And Andrew, anyway, he was the one who led Peter to the Lord. Well, Peter wouldn't even be in the group if it wasn't for Andrew. <laughs> So well, they could have argued. Had it grown out of a query like that, why did the Lord take the three up? And one of the others might have said, yes, it is funny, isn't it? Because he took those three in with Jervis's daughter and left us all outside with that wailing crowd of mourners. So anyway, we don't know quite how it happened. We don't know. What we do know is this, that Christ asked them what their discussion had been about. And they became tensely and uncomfortably silent. Now, the authorised version and the revised version puts it so, and they held their peace. But if you read it in the New English Bible or Phillips, 
uh, you will see they became silent. It was a tense, quite uncomfortable silent. Now another question I've got, what, what was the Lord doing in all this discussion? Was he lost in thought? Moving on ahead, absolutely lost in thought. Or was he dealing with some needy soul? Quite likely, someone had found him out, or spotted him. He was talking with them or dealing with them while his dear disciples bickered about who amongst them was the greatest. Then Christ tells them the secret of true greatness in the sight of God. If we would be first, he said, and greatest, then there must be a readiness to be last of all and servant of all. In other words, to become the general factotum. What a shock. Listen to his words, verse 35. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Bond slave is the word here, not one of the uh, um, servants getting wages, but a bond slave who was just the general factotum. In other words, what the Lord was saying was this, true service, true service, always leads to true greatness. True service always leads to true greatness. There's no other way in God's scheme of things to become someone or something. Do note in your Revised Standard Version, your New English Bible, or your J.B. Phillips Version, that it puts it like this. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. He must be last of all and servant of all. There's no other way. And will you also note that the Lord defines the spiritual character that leads to such greatness in the simplest, plainest language. So simple, so plain, that no one could misunderstand or misconstrue it, and it cannot be spiritualized away. One of our favorite things, if we cannot misconstrue some rather difficult passage, is to spiritualize it away. But you can't spiritualize away this. If any among you would be first and greatest, he must be last of all and servant of all. You can't spiritualize that away. It means precisely what it says. <laughs> How different the disciples' conception of greatness. Their estimate of greatness was this world's estimate of greatness. It was certainly not a matter of sacrificial and selfless service, of a life laid down for God and man. Uh, a readiness to be anything so that others should be 
cared for, looked after. You like, we can put it this way, a readiness to be a nobody so that others could become somebody. Their estimate of greatness was not that. Rather, it was a question of rank, of position, of authority, of outward pomp and glory, of physical proximity to the leader. You look at Mark chapter 10 and uh, verse 37. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. That was their idea. In a nutshell, that was their idea of greatness. To be something. Be on the platform. Be right next to the leader. Be somehow or other visibly, outwardly related to the leader. Hmm. You know, we're in the government. We're in authority here. Um... The Messiah's put us in charge. Okay. That was their idea. It was all a question of rank. Who was greatest? It's a question of rank. I have no doubt, although I suppose I must be careful because one day we shall meet them, that on that way back from their sort of discussion on their way, I have no doubt that Peter, in his sort of blunt and uh, open-hearted way, he said, well, I'm pretty sure I'm the greatest because I was taken up. And, uh, and uh, I was the one who said something up there, even though it was a bit stupid. <laughs> and anyway, I'm always the spokesman for the lot of you. You're all so stupid, you all keep your <laughs> trap shut in every situation. I'm the one that always says something. Or John might have said, well, I'm the greatest because I'm the one who's always lying on the Lord's breast. I'm always near to him, I'm always close to him. I'm the greatest. Well, I don't know. But their whole idea, even in this picture of, of intimacy, was we are physically near him. It wasn't a spiritual proximity of character. It was a physical proximity of bodies. That was their idea of greatness. I dare to say that most of us have got that lingering conception of greatness in us all. Think. You know, we're asked to do something, oh, we're somebody now. Or uh, if we can only get related to anyone else who's important or so on, that's our idea of a, hmm, something now, I'm something now. God's conception and estimate of greatness is quite opposite. Christ takes a little child, the child probably of the host, of the home putting his arm around him he makes that little child a parable we read that in verse uh, 30, 36 I think it is and 37 36 and 37 now Mark in shortening this account the account of this incident emphasizes the, the matter of service. In this gospel, it's not so much a question of childlikeness as it is in Matthew, 
but of the disciples, the servant of the Lord's attitude in his service to what is small, immature, and insignificant. Now, isn't that interesting? Matthew puts the whole accent, if you read in Matthew chapter 18 from verse 1 to 5, you'll see the same incident, but it's much fuller, it's amplified, if you like. And it, and it seems there, the accent there seems to be on childlikeness. The Lord's saying, if you have a childlike faith, if you've got a childlike dependence, that's greatness. But here, Mark leaves all that out and goes right to this point. Spiritual greatness is bound up with your attitude, my attitude, to what is small, to what is insignificant, to what is immature. Well, that's something, isn't it? May I say straight away that God's longing for every one of us is not what some people get, this false idea of the cross. That we should be ground down into the, into the earth, that we should be destroyed, that we should be sort of just simply broken, as if that's the cross. My dear child of God, God's dearest concern for you, his longing for you is that you should be great. Not nothing, great. Oh, don't let the devil whisper into your ear these other ideas that you should be just nothing, just broken up, just grounded. That's a, a twisting of something that is, that, that, that is true, the breaking work of the cross. But why does the Lord want you to go through the cross? He wants you to go through the cross so that you'll be great. God is great. His son is great. His character, his nature is great. His heart is great. And he longs that you and I should be truly great. And hence we have this whole passage, lest after the principle of the cross is explained, and it all seems to be breaking up, breaking down, being destroyed, and then illustrated, we should lose the point. The Lord wants us to be great God desires and looks for the kind of service that is not concerned with its own increase, its own fulfillment, its own satisfaction, and so on, but is prepared to give itself utterly to the care and perfecting of others in sacrificial love. A self-effacing, self-forgetting service that cares for the least one in the kingdom, even a little child, that's what it means. That's why he took that little boy or little girl, whoever it was, and made that one a parable. Well, you say, I don't quite get this. Well, let me ask you a question. Well, let me put it this way. It's a kind of self-forgetting love and service for the least one in God's family and not just for those great ones, or valuable ones, or significant ones, or mature ones who can promote us and further us and even support us. For what can you gain out of receiving a little child? 
What can you gain out of receiving a little child? Someone so much of a toddler that the Lord took him up in his crook of his arm and put him on his knee and made him this little parable. What can you gain? Can such a child advance you or promote your interests? Enable you to fulfill your plans and ambitions or support you financially? No, of course not. Yet it is in our attitude to the least in God's family that our kind of service is exposed. What a solemn thought. True greatness comes through the true kind of service. Now the impact of this upon those apostles, those disciples, must have been tremendous. Indeed, I'm quite sure it was terrible. <laughs> we, have only, we have only to remember that the disciples did not have too much care or concern for little children. Uh, you only have to turn over the page to chapter 10 and verse 13. We shall think about that the next time. They were bringing unto him little children that he should touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. You know, they said, Paul, get them all out of here. We're not here for little children. We've been having big sessions with the Lord about his real work and so on. And all these squalling brats all around, <laughs> wailing their heads off and cooing and clucking and and the master's a little bit silly when it comes to babies sort <laughs> of coos and clucks over them no it's there's no doubt about it the disciples were not famous for their care or concern or the time that they gave for little children so it must have come to them as a very great shock now, this service which God looks for and through which comes true greatness is not only the kind of service which cares for the least and the insignificant in, the, in, in God's family, but is also, as we see in the next verse or two, the kind of service which does not indulge in rivalry and jealousy, but genuinely recognizes and rejoices in what? is of God however small now you know the incident don't you evidently uh, the words of Christ in verse 35 if any among you would be first and greatest he must be last of all and servant of all and then he took a little child and then whoever receives one such child my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me now these words, the act and the explanation of it, evidently reminded John of something that had happened on their previous journey. And he asks a question. It raised a question in his mind. Um, <clears throat> they had seen a man casting out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus. And John, uh, always a rather fiery and forthright person, had boldly gone up to the man and shut him up forbade him to uh, exercise this ministry anymore 
And uh, he said to the Lord at the end of it all, because he wasn't following us. Now, what is all this about? Now, note, these disciples had forbidden this man, not because he was counterfeit, nor because there was mixture or error, but simply because he wasn't in the group. He wasn't in their group and he wasn't in their company. That was the only reason for it. Because he was not following us, is how he put it. Now again, the Lord puts his finger on true greatness. Verses 39 and 40 to 41. You see, do not forbid him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose his reward. What was the Lord saying? He was saying this. There is no place for the pettiness of jealousy or rivalry or sectarianism in the service of God. The petty fears that someone else may outshine us or outserve us. So we'll shut them up before it becomes a dread possibility or reality. Even something, says the Lord, as small as a cup of water given to a servant of the Lord will be rewarded. Now, in other words, what, what did the Lord mean? Because Matthew and Luke again say, a cup of cold water given to one of these little ones. No, Mark says no. The Lord said something else as well. And I am emphasizing this matter of service. A cup of cold water given to you. Now, a cup of cold water is really a Scotsman's gift. <laughs> it's not too much, is it? It doesn't cost you too much to give a cup of cold water. Yet the Lord says, however small that is, if it's given to someone who's a son of the Lord, given to you because you bear the name of Jesus Christ, that small gift will not go unrewarded or unnoticed or unrecognized. In other words, what the Lord was saying to us was this. Try to see in everything what there is of God, however small. Don't be narrow, bigoted and prejudiced. He didn't, of course, mean jump in fully clothed and get into anything that's mixed, erroneous or counterfeit, as we know from the rest of Scripture. But the Apostle Paul gives us, I am quite sure, the key to this in Philippians. He is a good example of this thing in Philippians and chapter 1 from 16 to 18. Now, if you want an, uh, an example of what the Lord meant, here it is. Verse 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one do it of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. But the other proclaim Christ of faction, not sincerely, thinking to raise up affliction for me in my bonds. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And therein I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now isn't that a spirit? 
Isn't that true greatness? That's true greatness there. Well, now let's go on. All right, we'll find our time has gone and oh, there's so much more to say. The character of this kind of service, it's essential greatness of spirit and heart can be seen in the following verses from verse 42 to 48. Now, I'm not going to read it, but it'll take too long, but if you've got your Bible open in front of you, you can see it there. It starts off with, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it'd be better for him of a great millstone. And then it goes on about, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Uh, and uh, so on. Now, what do, what do I mean, the character of this kind of service? It's essential greatness of spirit and heart can be seen in these verses. Some of you might well say, well, I don't see any greatness of spirit and heart in these verses. Ah. Here it is seen in this. That kind of character would rather cut off its own hand or foot or pluck out its own eye than that the least one of God's children should be stumbled. Now, some might even do that for those they consider worthwhile. Those they consider significant. But would they do it? One of these little ones ignorant, immature, empty-headed, stupid at times, willful. What the Lord is saying is that true greatness can be seen in that kind of character. The readiness to go to such lengths for the least in God's family reveals true greatness. Now, I want you to take these verses and just look two or three things. First of all, may I give you another example of this? I see it in Moses, in the spirit of Moses, which we have in Exodus 32, verses 31 and 32, when he said to the Lord, Lord, he said, they've sinned against you, but he said, either forgive them or block me out. Now, that's the spirit. Mutilate me, Lord. Mutilate me. Forgive them. I'd rather be mutilated, I'd rather be finished than that these people should be destroyed. Now that's the spirit. Then I want you to note what a solemn warning we have in verse 42 for us. For those of us who are supposed to be responsible, or older in the Lord, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What solemn words. The millstone, by the way, the only creature that could drag the millstone round was a young bullock or an ass. Shows you how big it was. So the Lord was saying, tie that round his neck throw him into the sea, better for him. Well, if, if that were better than facing the Lord, whatever's going to be like facing the Lord if we've caused one of, the little, of these little ones to stumble? That's solemn. 
minds of them. The third thing I want you to note about this is that the stumble in uh, verses 42, 43, 45, and 47, it stumbled, you will notice, in your revised version, your American Standard Version. It is offend in your authorized version, and in your revised Standard Version, it is sin. Now, the word, the Greek word, originally meant a snare to which the bait or tra uh, a snare or trap to which the bait has been attached. That's what it meant. Now think about that. Think about that. If anyone would cause one of these to be trapped, the idea being that there's a bit of bait there which has lured them into a snare. You've done it. You've done it. Well, the Lord goes on and says, if your hand is like that trap with a bit of bait in it to you, get rid of your hand. If your foot's like that trap with a bit of bait in it, luring you into such a stumbling, get rid of your foot. If your eye is the cause, get rid of your eye. There is a connection, although you may not all see it straight away, between my hand stumbling me, my foot stumbling me, my eye stumbling me in verses 43, 45 and 47 and one of these little ones being caused to stumble. Now I don't know whether you can see the connection but the connection is really this. What the Lord was saying is this. If you don't, if there's something in your life which is causing you to stumble, in the end that something will cause others to stumble. So deal with it. Don't play with it. Don't be kind with yourself. Don't mollycoddle yourself. Because in the end, it will cause terrible injury, not only to yourself, but to others. Better, says the Lord, to be one-eyed, peg-legged, or one-armed, and to be in life and in the kingdom than to have two eyes, two hands, two feet, and to be such a stumbling. Well, they're solemn words. I hope you can see something of this connection. Now, surely it's not a coincidence that the miracle recorded immediately before all this is about a child. You remember the little epileptic, demon-possessed boy? Christ was holding before them an ideal of service here which he himself perfectly exemplified. The kind of service which would rather itself be mutilated, injured, impaired than that one of God's little ones be stumbled. Now, of course, straight away I must add this, not that the Lord Jesus had anything, not that the Lord Jesus had a hand that caused him to stumble or sin, or an eye that caused him to stumble or sin, or a foot that caused him to stumble and sin. He was without sin. But surely we see this principle all the more clearly in him, who being without sin, had laid aside his own glory and laid down his own life that he might save us. Isn't that 
a kind of life which would prepare, is prepared for itself to be impaired, injured, mutilated, so that others could be saved. The Lord doesn't teach us something that he himself does not exemplify. This is the kind of service that's not interested only in itself all the time. Its place, its position, its increase, its well-being, its greatness, its popularity, its fulfillment, its glory. You know the kind of idea of service? I'll serve the Lord because then I'll end up in the throne. I'll serve the Lord because then it'll mean glory. This is not that kind of service. That's what the Lord means. Right, the Lord takes us on at any price sometimes. It's amazing, isn't it, what he does with how loving he is to us. But it's not true greatness. <laughs> Some of us may well get to the glory that way, but the Lord will say to us, well, you could have had a lot more. There wasn't that greatness of spirit and heart in you. You hung on for grim death, true. You were out for the throne and you got to the throne. But there wasn't the greatness true greatness I say this is the kind of service that rather would lay aside its own glory that others may be brought into that glory now isn't that the Lord Jesus he laid aside his own glory so that he could bring many sons to glory now there in a nutshell you've got the, the, the true greatness the character of true greatness How perfectly we see this in Christ when he laid aside his own glory and had come down from that mountain top and met the need of a little insignificant boy. Why? We could well have said to the Lord, stay up there, Lord, there are millions of such insignificant little boys in this world. And we don't know whether that little boy was ever in the 120 in the upper room. Whether in fact he was ever anything in the church, in the New Testament. How easily the Lord could have been deflected and said don't go down. But what I'm trying to get at is this. The Lord doesn't do things for what he gets out of it. He does things because of what he is. Oh, if we could get rid of this idea that God is some commercial sort of tycoon, spiritual tycoon, who's sort of sitting down, working out all the time. Now, what will I get out of the Halford House? What will I get out of them? It's true that the Lord has an inheritance in us. And it's true that there's a good... But it's all for us. Why, the Lord could have dispensed with all of us long ago. There needn't have been all these thousands of years of human history and all the sorrow and suffering of them. The Lord could have dispensed with us and still had glory and satisfaction and joy in another way. But it's his nature. It's his nature to love. It's his nature to serve. It's his nature to care for. It's his nature to lay aside his own glory so that we might know glory and be bought it. It's his nature to lay down his life so that we might have life. I 
think we might we have to say that Christ as the servant of the Lord had continually given himself to what would normally be considered worthless, small and insignificant. I think it's the whole gospel according to Mark. Why, I've never seen such a worthless, cheap lot of material. Take that leper. Not much there. What could the Lord get out of that? Take the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Smelly bundle of rags. Take that little old lady with the hemorrhage. I mean, probably most of her life was over anyway. Not much there. Take the Syrophoenician's daughter. <coughs> insignificant. They're all insignificant people. I suppose Jairus' daughter might have been Jairus for something. He was a ruler of the synagogue. She was only a girl. They didn't think too much of girls. I thought, well, not very significant, not very valuable. No, it seems to me that the whole of the Lord's ministry, as we find it in, in the gospel, is, is toward just people like this little child. He took the parable, but he himself had exemplified this thing, this principle in his whole ministry. This was service. This was true greatness. Why indeed should we be, we ought really to be able to sing from the heart, how great thou art, when you really think about it. That God should be the kind of God like this, who can come down and bother about lepers and blind beggars and ladies with hemorrhages and, and little children and uh, all the rest of it. Where indeed would we all be, all of us in this room, if it were not for that service of his, prepared so selflessly to save, to care for, to educate, yes, even to glorify the insignificant and worthless. Now let's be quite clear here. This kind of service this kind of greatness is not natural to us. The only way such service, such greatness can be produced is by the cross. No one is ready to be last of all and bond slave of all unless something of the principle of Calvary is at work in that person's life. Christ crucified in us is the only hope of such service and of such greatness. Furthermore, none of us can willingly, joyfully, and wholeheartedly, and nothing else is acceptable with God, none of us can willingly, joyfully, and wholeheartedly, as our Lord, care for and serve the least unless we are ready to be the last and the servant of all. Can you see that? That's what the Lord was getting at. You become last of all, you'll be ready to serve them all. You become bondslow, general factotum, and you'll take everyone in the encompass of your service. But if you're not prepared to take that place, then you'll always have a, an elite. The sixth form. 
the brighter ones, and so on and so on. Do you understand what I mean? What, what the law was trying to get at? Oh, I think we have so much to learn. Christ has given us here the acid test. It's a frightful test, really. The acid test whereby we may test our service as to whether it is his. I can take my service, and like they do, I've often watched the old Jewish dealers, the silver dealers, take a drop of acid and drop it on silver to see whether it's plated or silver. And in a flash it can be seen. Here is the acid test. The Lord drops it on our service and it's soon clear whether it's plated or through and through silver. So simple. That's why we see the severity of the cross underlined in these verses 43 to 48. Cut off your hand, Father Vulgar. <coughs> Cut off your hand. Amputate your hand. That's somehow one of the new versions. Amputate your hand. Amputate your foot. Pluck out your eye. Service, sacrificial and selfless service, is inherent within the life and nature of God eternal life into which we have entered. Now why do I say that? Because surely if you've been following me you wonder well, well isn't this fanciful thinking? This passage is about hell. This passage is about being saved surely not about service about being saved. Ah that's the whole point. That's why it's given such a headache uh, to so many commentators. What the Lord is trying to say is this the eternal life into which you and I, by the grace of God, have entered is the very life and nature of God. And inherent within that life and nature is sacrificial, selfless service. Let me go on. Inherent within that kingdom into which you and I have been born, this kind of service is put it another way the salvation with which you and I have been saved through the grace of God its very meaning is this kind of service right at the heart of our new birth is this kind of self-effacing selfless service now still, I have no doubt, you don't quite understand what I'm talking about. Let me put it another way. We have been saved from hell with all its inherent character of selfishness into the life of God with its inherent character of unselfishness. Therefore, self-centeredness Self-seeking, self-satisfaction in all its many guises is a contradiction to our salvation and birth. So the Lord says, rather than contradict the very meaning of your birth, the very meaning of the life into which I've brought you, cut your hand off, cut your foot off, pluck your eye out, be ready for spiritual surgery 
Oh, says someone, what kind of gospel is this? This is, this is so severe. We must understand that, that I've said, or we become believers who have within themselves a continual civil war. With all the attendant misery, frustration, restlessness and poverty. Doesn't that explain a lot of our lives? Why is it that when I first came to the Lord I was so joyful? How is it now that I'm so impoverished? How is it that when I first came it was all glory? How is it now that somehow, I don't know, I feel so frustrated, so restless, so discontented? I'll tell you what it is. You've got a civil war. The very meaning of your salvation is selfless service. That's what the Lord's trying to say here in this um, passage. May I just make one comment in passing about hell. Uh, Gehenna in Greek, from the Hebrew Gehinnom, which was a, 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 a gorge just south of, of Jerusalem, which was the ancient rubbish tip for the whole city. It was literally a place of maggots, of fire and of smoke. The maggots never died, or let me put it this way, they were always there. The fire never went out, and the smoke was always seen. I think Phillips, in his version, actually speaks of going onto the rubbish tip. And that's what hell is, the rubbish tip. I say that's, again, rather Serious. Now, well, we must close. Christ was thus appealing for a singleness of heart and purpose, an utter readiness to obey the law of the spirit of life in himself, even if it means much spiritual surgery. That's the best way I think you and I can understand uh, this passage. What the Lord is really saying is this. Obey the law of the spirit of life in me, in Christ. And you will be joyful, liberated, filled continually, full, overflowing. You will know power. You will know purpose. You will know fulfillment. Disobey it. Obey the law of self-centeredness as a Christian and you will know death, restriction, limitation, darkness, poverty. Our salvation is all of grace. But to enter into all its meaning and power, for it to be worked out in us in sacrificial service and love, it will cost us all of our self-life. That's what the Lord meant when he said, He that loseth his life, the same shall find it. If we would serve God, we must be salted with fire. That's the last verses, 49 and 50. Salted with fire. Now the references here to salt, 
have mystified many more so than anything else in this difficult passage as there seems to be no connection at all between them and there have been many explanations indeed there have been over 15 major interpretations of these two verses 49 and 50. Well now the generally held opinion is that Mark has lumped together not too cleverly a whole number of little comments the Lord made with salt as the title and they have no connection at all. I do not believe that Mark was so stupid. This whole gospel reveals such a skill in the way in which it's been put together I am quite sure that this bringing together of these different references on salt associating salt with fire and so on is extraordinary and means that uh, Mark is, to, is seeking to underline something salt acts as a seasoner bringing out the flavor in a meal as a preservative and as an antiseptic and in ancient times, salt was often used to ratify an agreement or a treaty. They threw salt into a common meal. And when they had to go, even today, if you take salt, remember this, any of you, if you ever tra travel in Arab lands, always take salt first with your meal. They'll never murder you after that. That's true. <laughs> Once you've taken salt in an Arab household, they won't murder you. It's quite true. You may find that funny, but it's absolutely true. So we, we can say that salt symbolizes durability, incorruptibility, uh, purity, constancy. Those are the things that salt uh, symbolizes. Now, let's come back to, the, to this verse. Everyone in the kingdom, every servant of the Lord, must know the purifying work of the cross cutting out the self-life with all its tendencies to corruption by the bringing in of his own life and nature. Now, I do want to accentuate that. There is an idea that the cross removes our old life and then the new life comes in in its place. Not so. The new life drives out the old. <laughs> Always get this clear. You don't come to the Spirit by the cross. You come to the cross by the Spirit. Remember that. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit. First you must see. Otherwise, you can see it theoretically, what the cross means, the principle of the cross, but it doesn't work. Why? Because it's by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. It's by the salt in you that all the corrupting tendencies of the old life are overcome. They're checked. They're overcome. I wonder whether you get that. Um, no sacrifice is acceptable to God without such assaulting. What does that mean? Well, if you read Leviticus 2, 11 to 14, you will see it's all about the salt being put in the offerings. And there's one thing that's put there, with one um, title that's given, the salt of the covenant. And what does that mean? It's a descriptive name for the preserving incorruptible life of God given to us in Christ and shall I give you the New Testament passage which some of you will have as a question um, this evening for next time the 
New Testament passage which absolutely and perfectly puts all this into a nutshell about salt. Everyone must be salted with fire and every sacrifice must be salted with salt. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Romans chapter 8 from verse 1 to verse 15. Got the whole thing there. You remember what it says? It says if, if Christ is in you, the body is dead. There it is. The salt's doing its work. Nullifying. Nullifying the old nature. See? Have salt in yourself. If you read very carefully through Romans chapter 8, you will find it's all there. It's, it's really absolutely marvellous. For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Have peace among yourselves. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God, but it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. But if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Have salt in yourselves. In other words, what the Lord is finally saying here is, what is the point of a Christian life, in inverted commas, where the life and nature of Christ is absent. Think that one out. What is the good of a Christian life where the life and nature of Christ is absent? What is the good of service where the character of the servant, the character and the spirit of the servant of the Lord is absent? How else can we be at peace with one another except by the cross and the spirit? no other way these final words here of Christ were undoubtedly a reference to the disciples continual bickering have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another <laughs> let my life and nature in and you'll find the ground of your unity you see what a lot there is well there we are we see therefore that the cross is not an option nor an extra, but an absolute necessity if the kind of service we see in Christ and the true greatness of heart and mind and character which comes through such serving is going to be produced in us. God wants us to have <coughs> spiritual greatness. He doesn't want servants who are mean, petty, small-minded, small-hearted. He wants to have people who are great. Greatness of heart, greatness of spirit, greatness of mind. <coughs> the only way that can be is to get the Lord into us. That's the salt. And once the Lord can come right into us by the spirit, then to know that putting to death of the other. Let the, the principle of the cross at work. Death in us, life in them. May the Lord help us. Shall we pray? Lord, as we review this study, we must 
bow before thee and, say, and confess, Lord, that none of us is great. None of us, Lord. The only one who is great is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can only say, how great thou art. Lord, we only long that something of the greatness of thy heart, the greatness of thy spirit, the greatness of thy mind may come into us. Lord, help us, not just to be despondent and depressed because our service, Lord, is so petty and mean when compared with what we see in thee. But rather, Lord, we pray, oh, may thy Holy Spirit so enlighten us, so illuminate us, that we shall know what it is to have salt in ourselves. And may it be, Lord, that we, our whole attitude in service toward that which is immature, insignificant, worthless, small, may it be changed, Lord. And may we have that heart of thine in us and that nature of thine in us. And we ask it all in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.